0: Today's guest is not a space industry expert. He is, in fact, a well-known forensic criminologist who's also a certified medical examiner at the physician's level, which is really cool. Why, then, is he on a show about smallsats and <laughs> process improvement with small smallsats? Because, hey, guess what? There's crossover from one field to another. What Dr. Ron is really, really good at is investigations, and that means slowing things down measuring things correctly, and even little things like determining the correct starting point for where we should begin our measurement of the incident, whatever it is, (laughs) okay? Now, if we look at the SmallSat mission failure rates, full and partial, from 2000 through 2018, there is about a 12% of mission failures that are unknown. Nobody knows why. Do you think maybe if we figured that out, (laughs) what those causes were, we would be able to do a much better job? Remember, at Cold Star Tech here, we are on a mission, the mission to make space boring. I don't want it to be exciting. I want people to be used to it. I want people using it the way that they use public transport or terrestrial Wi-Fi, where they don't really think about it too much. They go to jobs in space. They launch things. They drive. I, I think we can get people from the military who have been flying drones and come and pilot remote vehicles out mining asteroids. That might not be for 20 or 30 years, but I believe it can happen. This is why I wanted Dr. Ron on, and he's going to talk to us about some really cool things in forensic investigations, like cameras versus the human eye, the way that things are portrayed in movies and TV versus real life, and this idea of... Rigorous data collection. You know, I use this word documentation and people roll their eyes and and, uh, kind of blank out. And that's a problem. Like I have to find a fancy word or phrase for documentation to disguise it because otherwise people won't listen. So I call it something like critical data collection methodology. Ooh, what's that? I gotta sit up and take notice. It's documentation, (laughs) okay? Why is this so important? You will find out in this episode. So if you're running a CubeSat or small sat manufacturing operation, and you're you know this industry is moving. It, it started out. I mean, with the with the academia, they would make one satellite and launch it, right? And re- be really excited about it. And they wouldn't have much money. They wouldn't insure the thing, and it'd be up there, and boom, it might just fail, and nobody would know why, right? <laughs> you know? Or it'd work a little bit. Um, that's fine. But this industry is moving from a job shop, one-off, custom kind of thing like making a, a Boeing airplane or a German World War II uh, specific kind of tank to a, a something that is more like a continuous manufacturing operation. And this is key, this shift, because what happens with, if you're doing critical data collection properly, the stuff you can learn about quality control, problem solving, getting out in front of things so that you can stop them before they happen, continuous improvement, all that Lean Six Sigma stuff, maybe you know about it, maybe you've just heard about it, don't really know what it is. That that really comes into play when you get more towards a continuous manufacturing operation, like we are beginning to see when a company like SpaceX says, we want to make tens of thousands of these, and you know they're only going to last for a few years and then burn up, and need to be replaced and so there's going to be this continuous launching of new vehicles and what happens over time we're going to see costs reduce right we're going to get economies of scale and space is going to become boring thank goodness (laughs) that's our mission man to make space boring so let's bring Dr. Ron on listen up because he has got stuff to say that is directly relevant to you here in the space industry It's time for another episode of the Cold Star Project and I'm delighted today to have Dr. Ron Martinelli on and I'm gonna read a little bit here he's got this huge page of stuff that's uh, you know, that I'm not gonna do that <laughs> but I do want people to know uh, that Dr. Ron here is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who is the only police expert in the country who is also a certified medical investigator at the physicians level okay so what this guy does is he checks out officer and citizen involved shootings especially video and reviews them to find out like what happened here. And I wanted him on, I, I first uh, ran into Dr. Ron on Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History Podcast. And I thought, wow, who is this guy? I've got to find out more about him. And uh, so we connected on LinkedIn and talked a little bit. It, it's really exciting, the forensic investigations that you're doing. You've done over 350 of these. Uh, you were a San Jose Police Department detective. You do psychological profiling, all this cool stuff I want to dig into a little bit. It's, it's really neat and, and really why I wanted you on. In the forensics and legal community, you're called the expert's expert on this stuff. Really wanted you on to talk about the power of documentation and by having good documentation, what happens to the story. So thank you for being here.
1: Oh, well, no, thank, uh, thank you for, uh, for inviting me. I'm glad uh, we were able to take a little bit of a break today and, and mm-hmm. have this nice distraction so we could have this, <laughs> this important discussion.
0: Right. Well, let, let's dig right into it. I've got a few questions for you here. What is the first thing that you tell law enforcement officers when you're training them? At, and what point in their experience level do they usually run into you?
1: So what, uh, I guess there's a couple of different questions there. And, and, and the first question is, you know, what, what do I tell them? And well, it depends on really what the subject matter is. But classically, if they see me, it's in regards to some sort of crime investigation, some sort of CSI work, some sort of forensic investigation. And so to answer that question, the, the first thing I tell them, remember, if you didn't write it down and you didn't document it, then it didn't happen. In other words, the other side can say whatever they want to say, and you can't refute it because you didn't document it
0: okay which could be terrifying (laughs) and and, and, you know yeah and
1: and, you know jason the the documentation is is many different levels Mm -hmm. so you know classically people think about documentation is that we're writing something down and of course you know we always want to write something down but documentation comes on many different forms Uh, photographic documentation uh, audio documentation video documentation we're talking about body cams and Mm -hmm. and dash cams because a lot of the stuff and, and all also CCTV surveillance cams, because a lot of the stuff I do is a forensic reinvestigation. So mm-hmm. think of me as more likely than not a cold case detective. I'm on a couple of different shooting teams uh, throughout the United States, where if an officer gets involved in an officer involved shooting, or maybe even an in custody death, because mostly I deal with death. Uh, you know that, That's only about 3% of my practice. The, the rest of my practice is cold case.
0: Okay, so we've got all these different levels of documentation that may or may not have been have been recorded. In that, can can law enforcement officers rely on body cams? We see shows today like Cops and and what's that at Live PD? I watched a lot of Live PD. Uh, it's kind of fun candy for Saturday nights, you know.
1: <laughs> well, my my version of reality TV is Reno Nine One One. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And it's a comedy, all right, if you've never seen it. But uh, to to answer your question specifically, first of all, we see an amazing increase in the use of recorded forensic media. So we're using body cams, we're using dash cams, and that's been fully integrated into police practices and police encounters. That being said, uh, the answer to the question is we can't always solely depend on what those uh, forensic instruments, because that's what they are, they are forensic instruments document, because they don't pick up a lot of the nuances that the eyes will pick up, that the brain will record, uh, that the ears will hear or not hear. And so that goes into a, a huge part and growing part of my private practice, which is referred to as human factors or psychophysiology. In other words, how does the human body react during stress inoculated situations, adrenalized situations, compare and contrast that with the forensic instrument of the body cam or the dash cam, all right? I mean, we could do an entire program on just the differences and and how uh, things are recorded uh, both visually, auditorily, uh, experientially, as opposed to a forensic instrument, and then how that's applied in reconstruction of the incident and fact pattern, and then how is testimony presented to the trier of fact? which is, they're all very complicated issues, but they need to be done in every forensic investigation and presentation of evidence.
0: Okay, so Dr. Ron, just to clarify this for our, our listeners and viewers, what, what do they bring you in for exactly? Because they're having you look at this evidence and this video, evidence perhaps, and you're, you're sorting through it and looking for things, what are the kinds of things that you're picking out that somebody else wouldn't, like if they stuck me in front of the computer and said, watch this video, what am I going to miss that you're going to see that they are excited about bringing you in for?
1: Well, you know, I think that's a great question question, and what I'll try to do is do the same thing that I do in a court of law. I, I synthesize very technical, scientific, and complex uh, things, and I, and I bring them down to a level that, that the average Joe can understand and resonate with, okay? So let's just do that. So your, okay. your your question is, what do they bring me in for? Well, they bring me in for a whole bunch of different things, but I think your question is specific to the issue of documentation and these body cams. Is, is that what you're asking right, me, Jason? Right.
0: Yeah, let's go there.
1: Okay, great. <laughs> yeah. So what happens, and you see this on television all the time, there will be a body cam of a, of a police-related encounter that we see on television. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and people will immediately have uh, an emotional response to that. Oh, my God. You know, and it will either be in support of the officer or in support of the person that's being contacted by the officer. But what the people need to remember is that the camera, it does not present a three-dimensional image. Mm -hmm. It's only one-dimensional or at best two-dimensional. And what do I mean by that? Okay, so uh, the camera picks up only what the lens captures but they're and don't forget these are focal plane lenses and they don't capture uh, a 360 degree um, surface okay so a 360 degree environment if you wanted to see a real um, accurate portrayal of what could be seen factually you'd have to put that up in a drone and look and look down And, and then you'd see you'd literally see everything but don't forget that that forensic instrument does not pick up what the human eye sees and the human eye doesn't always pick up what the camera sees. Mm. And then the next thing, and this is probably one of the most important things is that human beings, because we're sentient and we, you know, we have brains and and we have cognitive processing. Sometimes that fails us Mm. and there's a lot of great, peer-reviewed research on that, a whole body of knowledge. And then, I mean, just tons and tons of actual uh, incidents where we can see that we have something referred to as stress recall memory. So just to to keep it really simple, picture the, the camera being the forensic exacting instrument that is able to record something. Okay, so we're recording an event. And when we stop that camera and we replay that event, we will always see the same thing over and over and over again. And that's why I refer to it as an objective forensic instrument. There is no speculation in it. It is what it is. And so we have in our labs, and we have one of the most amazing audio videologists in the whole United States. And he's on our forensic death investigations team. And we often go to him with body cam or dash cam. And we'd say, hey, let's take a look at this. Let's image this let's enhance it let's slow it down Uh, let's go frame by frame and forensically we're able to do that every single time without fail the human body and the human brain is totally different because of stress recall memory and stress amnesia the officers are not able to recall the instrument or the, the, the the statement of the incident as accurately and as forensically as a scientific instrument so here's something that i think uh, your listeners will be very interested in in learning as opposed to tv okay Mm -hmm. csi and all these things that you see uh that aren't reality by the way uh a a police officer if he's involved in an officer involved shooting and he's asked to to record back in other words tell us what happened Mm -hmm. within 24 hours he can't remember 75% of that event. He can only remember 25% of that event. Now, the next day, he may remember as much as 50%. And after three days, 72 hours, he's usually able to get about 80 to almost 90, sometimes Mm. more than 90% of what happened. He's able to recall it. But initially, he's not. And what Mm. uh, investigators make the mistake on when they're documenting, okay, uh, is they ask the officer to provide an immediate statement. And then what they do is they use that statement, which is often disjoint. uh, It's emotional because, you know, these guys might've just shot somebody, killed somebody, uh, maybe been injured themselves. They're going through all sorts. I mean, they're victims. And then they're going through all this emotional, psychological turmoil and trauma what, what they may give out, and I just had a case in, in, in Georgia, is, is a statement that's not accurate. And then subsequently, that's used against them in the prosecution of the officer, mm-hmm. where when we go in and we train officers on how to process you know, officer-involved shootings and, and in-custody deaths, we say, look, you only want to get, because this is a dynamic which is well-documented, in, in about 40% of all officers in officer-involved shooting. What you want to do is just ask the officer to give you a, a brief summary of, of where they were standing, where the other person was standing, uh, and what's all this stuff on the ground that we call evidence, right? What is the import of these particular objects? Can you identify these objects? And then that's it. All right, that, that's all we want from them because we need to be able to establish the crime scene. Always, Here's something we train them. Always better to make a big crime scene and compress it hmm. to look for evidence than start with a small crime scene and expand it. And the reason for that is it can be contaminated. And literally every minute that the crime, the post-crime period happens, uh, evidence is deteriorating. Uh, it's being stepped on it's being stolen. I actually had people come in during crime scenes active crime scenes see something cool and steal it wow okay i actually I actually had an accident once in San Jose where the accident- where a plane crash happened right above me it happened right above me. two planes collided right above me, and pieces of these planes were were falling down on the ground and I actually had to stop somebody from taking a tail section away. They were picked up a tail section. And started to drag it out of this field. It was absolutely incredible.
0: Wow, unbelievable.
1: Well, people, so that, go figure.
0: Yeah. Well, that that is some, some very interesting feedback. Uh, I've been in a few stressful situations in my life, and trying to recollect them, events in the scenario or out of joint. They're they're uh, in the wrong time order. You catch these things as you go, right? And wow. So, okay, I I'm curious if there's an event uh, that that has happened in in your experience where the documentation in a forensic investigation was misleading and how did you catch the issue?
1: Oh, great. Let's just talk about a case that was just adjudicated uh, and your listeners can look it up. It's the officer Derek Wiley, W-Y-L-I-E, officer involved shooting in Mesquite, Texas, uh, where uh, he had an encounter with an individual. Uh, on a suspicious person, suspicious vehicle call, the officer was all by himself, but he was trying to, you know, he called for backup. He was having some radio program uh, problems because people, other officers were stepping on the radio, which means at the same time you're transmitting, they're they're transmitting. So anyway, he uh, has a confrontation with this guy, which the entire time he believes this man is armed, they get into a hand-to-hand combat type of fight. The guy gets up, from the ground, and instead of running away, he moves a few steps rapidly uh, away from Officer Wiley. By the way, the guy had been trying to grab his gun. It was a terrible fight. Gets up and starts to spin around and points something at the officer, and it's dark. It's probably the worst conditions you could get, all right? So it's dark, it's raining, and there is exhaust steam coming out of one of the cars that partially conceals us, and the officer saw the guy turn around, and we measured it in 233 hundredths of a second. The officer had to make a life or death decision, shoot, don't shoot, and he shot this gentleman. He didn't kill him, but but he hurt him pretty good, and the officer was prosecuted because in the end, the suspect wasn't armed, and when the um, district attorney's office uh, came out and they had their investigators. And by the way, Mesquite PD came out and, and they, I would say they did a mediocre job mm. and the district attorney's investigators did a poor job. And what they tried to do was take the body camera imaging and they brought in a forensic animator. And of course we have one too, but they brought in a forensic animator who totally misconstrued mm. The analysis of the body cam video, and like for instance, one of the things that they did is they placed the subject, who was the suspect in this case, they the body mechanics were inaccurate. That's Mm -hmm. number one. But the time that they decided to film or to enhance the shooting was when the when the sound of the gun went Mm -hmm. off, and the powder from the gun went on in other words you could see some powder you could see a little bit of smoke uh, because it was so cold that night and that's not when the trigger was actually pulled okay so you got to remember in the cycle of operation of a firearm the bullet the projectile comes out of the barrel before anything else comes out of the barrel Mm -hmm. the flash comes out of the barrel bullets already gone the flash is the gunpowder that is being burned up in the barrel and coming out of the barrel of the gun, and the smoke follows that. And you think, well, oh, that that happens in a millisecond. Exactly. But what we were able to conclusively show using our audio-videologist, we didn't use a forensic animator, uh, we were able to conclusively show frame by frame that the officer made the life and death decision in less than a blink of an eye 233 hundredths of a second. And for your your listeners, just so that they know, the average blink of an eye takes place in three to four hundredths of a second. Hmm. And when we stopped the frame, the man had his hand out extended towards the officer in a fist. In such, we were able to enhance this video where you could actually see the back of the guy's knuckles. Now, the officer doesn't see that. Okay, so don't, don't forget, they right. see the hand and arm raised towards them in an aggressive manner as if the guy's shooting, going to shoot him. And, but the eye can't pick up those nuances. They only go with what the, what the eye uh, transmits to the brain is a reasonable objective life threat. Mm-hmm. So that was really important for the jury to see that. And we were able to, you know, I got on the stand and I did, did all the scientific stuff kind of broke it down for the jury for them to understand but did it compare and contrast and we basically blew their case apart
0: hmm. so again you can take the same raw materials of, of evidence and interpret it different ways and who's got the best interpretation well
1: Correct. Can I? Can I you you know
0: what you're talking about. So yeah, Jason. Can yeah. let
1: me give you one more, which was really yeah. kind of cool.
0: Uh,
1: and by the way, that officer was acquitted. Speaking of another officer that I had acquitted, up in uh, in the uh, area of New Hampshire, uh, we had a, an officer by the name of Lynch, and he was involved in a in a long vehicle pursuit with other officers. Anyway, the guy finally ends up stopping, and uh, everybody's screaming at him. They even had a canine there. Uh, get out of the car, get out of the car, and they're trying to get him on the ground, which is what we do to, to minimize the suspect's ability to get up and jump or fight us or draw a weapon. Well, at the same time that all this is happening, there's a helicopter, there's a news helicopter up over the top of this whole thing. And the news helicopter, of course, has got a nice, almost 360 degree view. And the guy that they're trying to arrest after being told numerous times that, you know, lay down flat and stretch out your arms. He starts to post up off the ground and his right arm leaves his body and goes towards the center of his waistband. Mm-hmm. And uh, the officer that I was defending moved forward and smacked this guy. I didn't shoot him, but moved forward and smacked him and smacked him a couple of times because in his mind, from his position on the ground,
0: mm-hmm.
1: out above, but on the ground, it looked to him as if the guy was going for a gun. But the prosecutors messed up because they didn't understand how to properly interpret forensic recorded media. So mm-hmm. from their position up on up in the air, where you can see everything, the guy clearly doesn't have a gun. Right. Right? But to my guy on the ground, it looked to him like he was going for his waistband. Right. And, we, he yep. was and you have to
0: make these decisions so fast. I, exactly. I remember from that Malcolm Gladwell podcast, he came to visit you, and you, you, were, you were showing him a video where some sheriff deputies had gone in to serve a warrant, and they got shot. And they knew the guy had a weapon, and I think it was a quarter of a second or something. In the it time was. That it took him to take the weapon, raise it, and shoot a couple of them. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's on my forensic blog, drronmartinelli.com. And uh, the, the title of that, and people can look that up because it's a real-time video, and we use that in court from time to time, uh, twenty five hundredths of a second. Now, what was neat about Malcolm, and I can't thank him enough about having me on his program, I had no I and of course, I knew who Malcolm Gladwell was, but I had no idea that his show was as popular as it was. So what we did was we took four officer-involved shooting case histories and we put him in our in our living laboratory and had him play police officer, and it was really interesting how that came out. And then we did the stress memory recall with him, and he, he had some difficulties remembering. And so it was an epiphany uh, for Malcolm to because he's written about this from time to time. And I mean, you no know, full disclosure—he's been a little bit critical of law enforcement. Uh, but when we put him in that same situation. It really was a wake-up call for him, and he really got to see how the science of human factors all comes into play.
0: Mm-hmm. Simulation is a fantastic tool. Oh, it is! I I'm love delighted it. Delighted to hear that you have that because it's <laughs> that's great. Yeah, but you got a great yeah, lab here. Yeah. And I'm a I'm a camera guy as well, of geographers. So that the aperture and just how many millimeters is the lens, right? You're going to get a different look and a different picture exactly. depending on what tool you're using. And uh, from that overhead down shot, nobody can see facial expressions. Exactly, it was the first thing that I thought of, right? When we and were, when we
1: and you it. know, an officer. I'm so glad you brought that up hmm. because don't forget that officers in their, you know, uh, experiencing a life threat, they pick up on all sorts of cues that are instantaneous, that the, you know, body cues and the way the body moves very quickly that the camera doesn't really uh, pick up and interpret. And the other thing, to go back to your initial question about how how can body cams and dash cams, uh, how can the other side mess with it to misinterpret what's going on, uh, is don't forget that we can we can lighten up anything okay we can see once we play with the video and we have all these you know scientific technologies and applications that we use for film there's all sorts of things that we can do that that the human eye can never pick up there's other things that the human eye can pick up that the camera can't pick up if it's not infrared so you know people have to remember that, Hey, look, this was played with, we did this to enhance it. We did that to enhance it. And the human eye really can't see that. But we also have a wonderful vision expert uh, that we bring in that, that testifies before the trier fact and fills them in on all that cool
0: stuff. Hmm. And I think the, there's like a circle of, of uh, focus on our vision that's maybe the size of a quarter or a nickel or something like that. And everything outside is actually blurry. And it's much smaller than you think exactly how how you're able to see and focus
1: yeah exactly as a matter of fact you know taking that into reality the human eye uh, can normally uh, pick up or perceive you can either see it or you can perceive the movement uh, 180 degrees because uh, you know we've got a cornea which is our focal lens and then we have some uh, liquid behind it called vitre- vitreous fluid that we we use in toxicologies but you have fluid in your eye well don't forget you got fluid all over your body and so when your blood pressure rises your basal metabolic rate rises because you're adrenalized you have adrenaline epinephrine and you know, all these cool survival chemicals in you. What happens when you're jacked up and adrenalized and your, your blood pressure goes up, the pressure in all the fluids rise as well. And the pressure of the vitreous fluid is placed against the back of the cornea and literally changes the shape of the cornea. And just like a camera lens, you know, like when you're focusing in and you're talking about losing peripheral vision, well, the eye, the human eye does that and they lose about 170 or more degrees. So you're only seeing... 10 degrees or even uh, less degrees front of center. And that's why cops, you know, the camera shows it. Oh, right. there's the, there's the weapon. My God. Or, or you see, it's a cell phone. Oh my God. Why didn't that stupid officer see that it was a cell phone? They can't see it.
0: Yeah.
1: They can only see the aggressive movement. And then that placed into the equation with the collective knowledge of the officer, and the reasonable belief that he was armed and acting aggressively as he is. if he was armed, that's how the officers make their calculus whether or not to shoot.
0: Right. And they have a tiny amount of time, as you've pointed in, out. In a millisecond. <laughs> literally,
1: t- literally in the blink of an eye. And I know Malcolm wrote that great book, Blink. It's hmm. in my library. People should read it. If it uh, you should read some of Malcolm's stuff. Hmm. Uh, it literally takes place in the blink of an eye, which is going to be the title of one of my next books. Yeah. Huh.
0: Right. And you are an author. That's right. Uh, We'll probably cover that at the end. Okay. So I have to confess, I do not like procedural dramas. They're a kind of TV that I just, I don't watch much TV anyway, but I avoid them. They irritate me. The kind of smart alecky interplay between the characters really bugs me. And uh, so I'm curious, having done psychological profiling, what is the biggest difference that you've noticed between the way that psychological profiling and profilers are portrayed in TV? in film uh, and real life? What are, what are those big Boy.
1: differences? Uh, you know, <laughs> go, go, going all the way and you know, my training came from the Federal Bureau of Investigations, the mm-hmm. BSU, the Behavioral Science Unit, uh, and my doctorates in, in crim with uh, criminology with emphasis in forensic psych. So I think the biggest thing that I see uh, with the mind detective sort of shows is that you only bring in a profiler. Uh, on a couple of occasions, okay? Mm -hmm. Number one, if you've got too many suspects and you need to narrow it down, or you've got no suspects Mm -hmm. and you have some evidence and you literally need someone to uh, revisit those crime scenes, revisit those evidence, look at things like proprietary interest, which is huge. And proprietary interest is is basically defined as as someone, uh, something that, that the suspect takes from the crime scene, leaves at the crime scene or the way the crime scene is manipulated, okay? So we take a look at that, and literally the profiler has to pull a rabbit out of the hat. And then, totally different from what you see on TV, they tell you in the FBI classes, the profiling class, they tell you, look, if you are as much as 20% accurate, man, you're doing a great job, uh, <laughs> okay? You're yeah. do, you know, where on TV, oh, here's the profile, and they got it.
0: Wow. So, uh, it's just not as easy as uh, as fiction makes it out to be. You know what, (laughs) What I'm telling you, you
1: I'm going to probably disappoint everybody, but make the real cops happy, the detectives happy. It's all, yes, forensics and, and the technology are amazing, and they certainly help us. But you know what, it's all about talking to people. It's all about, you know, gumshoe work is, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm an old dog. So we talk about the gumshoes, you know, walking the neighborhoods, doing the canvases, getting the information, taking the tips and, and, and just reconciling these crime scenes, disorganized, organized crime scenes. You know, it's, it's all about putting puzzles together.
0: Okay. I want to move into the importance of good documentation, uh, which is probably where we'll end up for, for this show. Uh, you 're an expert witness. you can go on the stand and, and testify and that kind of thing and, and people take your opinion very, very seriously as they should. <laughs> when documentation is poor or missing and, and I have researched this uh, i 'm by no means an expert on it, but uh, i 've been looking into this for for the company for several years now in officer involved shootings and police cases every fifteen or twenty years, there seems to be a big uh, police incident with, uh, with a lot of officer deaths that causes the FBI and police to retrain and try and learn some lessons from that. And two that stand out are uh, 1970s Newhall shooting in California where documentation was very poor and the 1986 Miami-Dade shooting where a criminal profiler was used and was effective in, uh, in catching these guys. The guy predicted they're gonna show up here on this piece of highway and there they were. And so, what happened with Miami Dade that did not happen with Newhall is the story stayed consistent, and (laughs) and Newhall it changed. Um, People, people even got the year wrong (laughs) after a while. So, what I guess just for our listeners, four police officers, as as I recall, were killed in about two minutes in in Newhall's um, situation, and they were trying to figure out why this happened and how could this happen and whatnot and. They came up with a theory that, oh, if they had um, reloaded, they were using service revolvers at the time, which which you think of the old West, the six shooters, right? And if they, they, they thought, well, this one officer, he uh, dropped his brass, and was trying to manually reload one at a time, all the six rounds of his weapon, and then he could fight back. Well, while he was doing this, one of the bad guys walked up and shot him. And they, the, the theory about this, uh, that the, sh- the change was made was, well, okay, just reload two, and then get get back into action right don't worry about trying to reload all six just speed up right by doing this and this this taught generations of uh, of police trainers and marine shooting instructors and that right and so like you could think for 20 or 30 years this was the 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 system that they used and by the time the 2000s was were rolling around uh some of the people who were involved with the new hall shooting you know reacting to it started meeting online and discussing hey what do you know and what do you know and And it turned out that this this story that this entire training regimen had been based on may never have happened and that to me when I read that and heard that uh, there was a video about it I was like oh my gosh this is insane and it's so applicable to business any business where you think you know what happened, you change policy based on it, and then you find out, no, the lessons that we thought we learned, we actually didn't learn. So how do you ensure that that story does not change over time?
1: Wow. Uh, There's so much in there uh, Mm -hmm. that you you stated, and uh, (laughs) I know a lot about both of those shootings because I've studied both of those shootings uh and, and let me uh, help your listeners with a couple of other mm-hmm. nuances of the new uh story uh what you were talking about with the revolver is correct but really what what the what they found uh, at the crime scene when they uh, examined the officers bodies is they had taken the brass and stuck them in their pockets so they mm. didn't they didn't throw them on the ground okay. they, they took time to to take take the gun clean their gun out right put the brass in their hands and then stick them in their pockets so that was one because that's the way that they were taught on the range because at right. the CHP range at the they were all California Highway Patrol officers, uh, and by the way, there were two officers that got in a gunfight. They were both killed. The oh. next two officers came right behind them and they were both killed. And, and the same mistakes were made. Right. So and then one of the officers uh, had gotten so scared that he had literally ejected every round out of his every live round out of his shotgun. So the first thing that we looked at was that understanding that you can inculcate bad memories. Hmm. Okay, so you want to inculcate or ingrain good memories, good safety memories, not bad ones. Because when you're in a, in a gunfight, when you're in a high stress incident, you're not doing any cognitive processing. Right. It's all what we call, um, you know, subconscious mind, subconscious memories. And, and there's a really cool experiment uh, you know, that you can do sometime, and, and and I'll tell you what it is, and your people can do it, your listeners, it's kind of fun to do, is uh, in your best handwriting in three seconds, sign your name in the best cursive handwriting, and then do that experiment over, but do it in the other hand, okay, and you'll see that one signature is, is nice, and the other signature lo- looks like you're under the influence of drugs, and that's how the mind works, so the first memory you've signed your name a million times and so you don't even think about signing your name the second one because it's now in 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 the uh in the back in in the midbrain okay in the subconscious mind but when you tell somebody okay now switch hands they have to immediately go from the subconscious mind to the forebrain and use cognitive processing Mm -hmm. the same thing happened with those poor officers they were trained poorly now in the miami-dade uh shooting Uh, That was a a, sort of a different set of circumstances. But Mm -hmm. what the officers found is that in high stress situations, not only were they shooting poorly, but they couldn't put the people down. Mm -hmm. And and what we learned from that is you keep shooting until the threat has stopped. right. And that's why we classically will shoot a certain number of rounds and, and officers will keep firing until that threat is down people think you know because they say on tv shoot to kill we never are trained to shoot to kill where no matter what target is presented we're always trained to shoot center mass all right and we shoot until the threat is down the thing to remember in the miami-dade shooting is one of those guys had 26 rounds he Mm -hmm. was shot he had 26 rounds and he survived 25 of the 26 rounds and were able to continue to kill officers so you know we you know, we, we teach them the whole memory thing and inculcating good memories. As far as documentation is concerned, when you have these crime scenes, no matter what it is, the documentation begins the second you get there and continues for every second that you're on scene. So you have to photographically, uh, first document and, you know, you have to take several different photographs of evidence from, from different, uh, You know perspectives. You want to make sure that you're using a recorder, uh, that you're using video cameras, that that you're also writing, and you want to make sure that you can fill in the pieces of the puzzle. Because again, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen, and and then people on opposing sides, if you don't write it down, then they get to write the script. So you're writing a script. You're writing a fact pattern, factual objective script but the other side is not so the other side is going to take your mistakes and they're going to capitalize on that
0: okay so let's say well our, our listener is a business person let's say and they're like well dr rod jason i'm not going to be involved in a shooting and i don't need to be acquitted or, you know or, or find out whether i did this correctly or not what how important is it for for a regular person a business person to have systems in place to document events in your opinion
1: oh that that's a great question and uh you know i guess i am a business person because we Mm -hmm. do have a successful business here but but i'm also uh i'm also privileged to be married to one of the Mm -hmm. top business women in america and she's got a huge business and we i've learned so much from her and so that like problems like it, let's say you're in sales or something. My wife deals with a lot of sales issues. It's so important to write good emails to people mm-hmm. that documents a conversation. So if you're placing an order, you know, you're, and you're having a conversation with a salesperson or a vendor or something like that, you need to be able to document the fruits and the talking points of that conversation and send it back to them. One of the big problems that we see in business, and and, and it's not only in business, it's in every uh, walk of life where there is interaction uh, between some sort of vendor or some sort of entity, governmental entity, I don't care what it is, people do not read anymore. They don't read emails. The evidence is right there, what is needed, is right there. And these younger people, because they're so used to it's kind of a millennium thing, they're so used to texting and things are moving so fast that their eyes move too fast and they've trained their eyes to get bored too fast and they, they don't look at the context. They don't look at the words, the language, and the context of what is being documented and they can make all sorts of mistakes. So if you're in business and you're going to have a meeting, uh, with your staff. Here's what you do. First of all, you tell them what you're going to tell them, then you tell them, and then you tell them what you just told them. That's verbally, but then you document the conversation and the talking points, and you send that, and we always do time and date stamps on everything because we're always dealing with attorneys and state Mm -hmm. and local and federal and even international governments. And my staff has been trained to document those conversations. If you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. And if you don't write it down that it did happen and it comes back to you, you need that because that's your backup system that protects you, CYA as they call it. Mm -hmm.
0: Right. And uh, yeah, folks listening think that that sounds basic. Let me tell you, most businesses, organizations don't do well with the basics. If you just mastered the basics, you would be very, very good.
1: Yeah. You know, you don't don't have to go through all this technological mumbo jumbo. Uh, You know, business is still about people talking to people, Mm -hmm. but it's also about documenting conversations to ensure Clarity of what is discussed in agreement or consensus with what is discussed.
0: Okay, Dr. Ron Martinelli. Let's finish up. Tell us where people can get a hold of you or how they can find out more about you. And then also, I know you're an author. Tell us a little bit about the book, book or books you have out, and what you've got in mind coming okay. up.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you can find us at Martinelli and Associates Justice and Forensic Consultants, and we have offices in Texas and offices in Corona, California, in Southern California. Uh, we're easily Googled, and it's just www. That's or just Google, Google Dr. Ron Martinelli. Mm-hmm. That's how to get a hold of the Forensic Death Investigations team. The other thing is, I love to write, Uh, I've got a very popular book out that discusses some of the things that we're talking about, Jason, and it's called The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. And that's found on Amazon.com. So The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. Amazon, it's got some great cases, cases I've worked, Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman shooting, Hands Up, Don't Shoot, Michael Brown, Uh, a lot of these different really cool cases. My first case was Rodney King, Uh, and now I've moved into fictional book series, and I've got a great book series that is going to come out, got a great New York publisher, and it's called Wade Justice, spelled J-U-S-T-U-S, play on the word justice. Texas Ranger, and uh, that's a wonderful series that's going to come out on Page Publishing in February.
0: All right, Dr. Ron, thanks for a wonderful conversation. Really enjoyed it.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thanks.